You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. I'm going to begin in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to swim in the deep end of the pool today. Is that okay? Last Sunday before I get surgery, you're not going to see me for probably three weeks. We got a nice roster of people coming. Pastor Steve from Valley is going to be here next week. My man can preach. Pastor Mark is going to be here the following week. We all know he can preach. And then our very own Steve Saldana is going to be giving his testimony on October 3rd, and it is powerful. And I will be resting and judging everyone safely from the comfort of my own house. No, I'm just kidding. I'm very grateful to have people who can do this. Okay, some texts that I'm sure we're all familiar with. We'll start with Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not, everybody say not, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And we will skip to one piece of that armor in verse 17 and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the... which is the... and then what's the next word? Praying. Did you put it up yet? I I jumped them. Praying... At all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And how do you use it? Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. One verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. And then, would you turn with me or scroll with me? That was funny. To the book of Revelation. Not Revelations. Please never say that in my presence. The book of Revelation, chapter 5. Ooh. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, everybody say lion, the king of the jungle, the root of David has conquered, everybody say conquered, a lion has conquered. Is that usually a pleasant sight when lions conquer things? They cuddle? No. Lion has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. And listen to this. And between the throne And the four living creatures and among the elders, which means deep into the life of the church, I saw a lamb. I thought they said it was a lion. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. 
almost looking like it was eaten by a lion, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, the entire church fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and, a, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. And now would you please listen to the gospel this morning. A reading from the gospel of Mark chapter 8 starting with verse 27 and going into the ninth chapter. And so Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Eric. We have, some, we have some stuff on the table here. And so let's enjoy this for a second. I can't see anybody. It is because I don't have these on. Ah, there you all are. There's my amazingly beautiful wife on the front row. Distractingly gorgeous. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a good friend for a little bit longer. What it means to be a good friend to our spouse, what it means to be a good friend to our children, what it means to be a good friend to our friends, what it means to be a good friend with our coworkers and acquaintances, and remember what we've been saying for the last few weeks. Friendship should exist in all of these relationships. It's just that the relationship determines the kind of friendship that you can have. So there's a different kind of friendship that a parent can have with a child that's different than that how that child will be friends with their friends like from school. So it's not that there isn't friendship within these other relationships. It's just that the relationship determines the way that you can be friends. And how do we know this? We know, and, and, and some of us have been taught that the higher up you are in somebody's life with authority, the less you can be friends, but I think it's fair to say that the most authoritative person ever to walk the face of the earth would be Jesus, and Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but... So those of us who have authority, we should be trying to figure out what it means to be friends with people who we serve. I said that very intentionally. When you have authority in the world, you have authority to make commands and demands. But when you have authority in the kingdom, you are given grace to serve. 
serve. Authority in Christ's kingdom looks more like a towel than it does a megaphone. It looks more like a cross than the iron throne. No one wants to admit they've seen Game of Thrones, Tim, except for you. I commend your honesty. Winter is coming. So is spring. But that was last week's message. And it was good, so everybody should listen to it. So what do we see here with Jesus? Jesus and Peter is such a beautiful depiction of friendship because it encompasses sort of a father-son relationship, which is fine. It encompasses the relationship that Christ has with his church. So that's the bridegroom relationship. It encompasses the relationship that congregants have together because Jesus and Peter are both doing the work of the ministry. This relationship with Jesus and Peter can be a metaphor for almost all the different kinds of relationships, symbolically and metaphorically, of course, that one can have. So what do we see here with this kind of comical, sort of tragic, weird moment that Jesus shares with Peter? Like, my brother and I talk about the high-low moments where, like, you have this great moment and everybody's, like, amazed with you, and then two seconds later, you do something and no one's impressed with you ever again anymore. That's the ebb and flow of marriage. It's the ebb and flow of parenting. It's the ebb and flow of being a teacher. High-low like a seesaw, and Peter maybe has the most extensive high low moment of all. He gets an answer right, and then everybody thinks that Jesus calls him Satan. This is a high-low moment, but it's one that reveals deep and unyielding friendship, and it teaches us about, first, the way that Jesus is friends with us, and therefore, and out of that, the way that we are to befriend the world as the church and each other within the church. So first, friendship seeks to hear well. Friendship seeks to hear well. Simple point, kind of devastating, and I will explain. And I want to give Anthony credit for this. When Anthony was running the youth ministry, Anthony preached to advance on this text that Eric just read for us. And Anthony said something probably seven years ago, five years ago, crazy amount of just time flipping by. He said something to our youth that impressed me, and I'm now going to give you credit the first time. The second time I do this, I'm going to say somebody said. The third time, it's mine. Sermons are legal plagiarism. This is what we do. There's nothing new under the sun, so there's a verse for it, so whatever. Kids in school, other kinds of plagiarism is not good, just so everybody knows officially. Jesus says to his disciples, who do others say that I am? And Anthony said to our youth group, you cannot just be obsessed with your own opinion. It is a disciple's character to know what other people are saying and what other people believe. Otherwise, you're not being a good disciple. It's an amazingly good point. Jesus is saying, all right, guys, I'm going to test something here. Have you been listening to what other people believe, or have you been living only to just flesh out your own opinion any way that you possibly can? Husbands, 
What does your wife have to say about things? Can you articulate it right now if I gave you a microphone and put you on the spot? Phil, come up here again. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Get him an oxygen tank real fast. If I asked, what does your wife believe about X, Y, and Z? What does your husband believe about X, Y, and Z? What does your best friend say about this particular topic? Would we know what the people we care about, would we know what they believe, or do we only listen to what they believe long enough for us to figure out how to shoot it down? Do we listen as if they're giving us ammunition to go back against them, or do we listen because we believe and we know that what they're saying is a gift, whether we agree with it or not, simply because it's being given to us? You all are going to have to be fake for the rest of this service. If you're not feeling what I'm saying, can you fake me out, please? It's my birthday weekend. Everyone else gets to have a birthday month. I watch you all on Instagram. You start celebrating your birthday 75 years before the birthday even happens. Let me get a service. Can I get a service? God. This is nothing yet. We haven't gotten to what it says in the Revelations. Good friends don't care so much about what somebody else believes as much as they care about where they believe it from. This is not simple. This is the deep end of the pool today. Sharks are swimming in these waters. Tread safely with me. But the reality is this. We focus so much and so hard on the what of the belief that we never take the time to hear the story behind why and where somebody believes what they do. And the where is all of the things that are important. Everybody's what can easily be shot down or glorified, but their where is everything. You want to have a good marriage, you need to know where the opinions are coming from, not just what they are. The where is everything. Somebody who's had a very tragic, very malformed, very abusive experience might have views that are technically wrong, but the where is so much more important than the what. Somebody might have had just this decent little silver spoon kind of life, and they believe all the right things, but they're coming from materialistic places. And so it looks like it's good, but the where is not tethered to anything real. Jesus would say it this way, it's a soil that doesn't have much depth, and it immediately produces fruit, but because it didn't have any depth, the, the storms and the sun withered it away. The where is so much more important. The whole parable of the soil, we call it the parable of the sower, but it's really the parable of three soils. The path, the rocky ground, the thorny soil, and then the good soil. It's all about the where. The seed is right in all of those soils. But the where determines whether or not the what is going to produce fruit. If you want to fight, care about the what. If you want to serve, care about the where. When your friends your spouse, your coworkers, 
if you have authority on your job, when your employees open up to you and it annoys you because what they're saying is ridiculous, which will happen sometimes. We will get to this in a moment. I'm not saying everything people are going to say is right. Jacqueline knows this. I will say a lot of things. Once in a blue, it'll be right, but a lot of things will be said. I'm not saying they're right, but when people open up to you at all, before you do anything, in your heart, say thank you for the gift of your vulnerability and trust. We pounce on opinions in this culture right now, or we way too quickly accept them as good because they affirm ours. We don't stop. Receive as gift what was said, even if it's a wagging finger, even if it's critique, even if it says, I, I've had people, believe it or not, people in this room disagree with me sometimes. I don't know why. It makes no sense, but they do. And early on, it was a little staggering to me, like, what? How, I cannot say everything perfectly, and I certainly can't say what everybody wants to hear. And then Bishop Quentin said to me, it sounds like you're getting agitated when people are disagreeing with you. Do you and I'm not saying this to pat on the back. I'm saying, I'm giving, I want you, us all to be this way. He said, do you realize you've become the kind of leader that where people feel safe to disagree? That's a gift. You've given them a gift, and they're giving you a gift back. You've given them space, and they're able to speak their heart to you. This is a gift. So before we get angry at what somebody said, or before, like, you, you can, you've talked to that person, I'm not this person, but you've talked to a person where you can actually see them taking breaths while you're talking because they just so badly want to say what they originally wanted to say at the beginning of the conversation before they heard anything you were going to say at all. Like, they had a thing, they wanted to say the word cat, and no matter what you said, you could have said, you know what, we're going to talk about Netflix, and they're just like, cat! Like, they just needed to say what they were going to say the whole time. They didn't care about what you were saying. They cared that you would shut up so that you, can, they can, that you, you would be heard. This is not good friendship. Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they all give answers. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Are any of those right? No. Some say you're merely a prophet. Wrong. Some say you're John the Baptist. Wrong. Some say you're Elijah. Wrong. Does Jesus ever say to them, you need to leave right now and go tell them that they're wrong? No. He says, got it. It's good for me to know what people are saying. It's good for me to know that even though they have misunderstandings of me, there's a lot of stories out there. There's a lot of reasons for people to think I'm Elijah. There's a lot of reasons for people to think I'm John the Baptist raised from the dead. It takes a lot of faith to believe that God raised John the Baptist. There's a lot of faith implicit in people's misunderstandings of Jesus. Sometimes there's more faith in somebody's misunderstanding of Jesus than there is in our understanding of him. We're about to see this with Peter now. Sometimes people will misunderstand Jesus in a more faithful way than we'll understand him. Isn't this just the son of some obscure carpenter? Yes, you're right, and your rightness is hurting you. Other people think he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. What kind of faith does it take to believe that? A ton. Are they technically right? No. But you could have somebody who says all the right things about Jesus, Peter, Judas, and be very wrong, and people who say misunderstood things about him, and maybe be a little, as we would say with children, warmer, warmer, 
We focus on the what. Good friends do not focus on the what. They focus on the where. It takes no time to focus on the what. It takes a lifetime to focus on the where. It takes effort to focus on the where. You have to listen to your spouse without talking to be able to focus on the where. You have to be interested to focus on the where. You have to have patience to focus on the where. Good friends seek to hear well. Next. Good friends seek to live well. I put it up there that way because it just looks nice and symmetrical. What I wanted to say, and Ian told me it was too many words, which is probably true. Good friends want to live right more than they want to be right. Good friends want to live right more than they want to be right. When we want to be right, all we got to do is have the right facts. When we want to live right, we need to be able to apply the facts that we're so unbelievably passionate about, but are we living? Husbands, I'll just pick on us for a moment. Every time we critique our spouses, do we really live the life that doesn't need that same critique? You do? Can I go to your marriage class, please? We're over here talking about, don't talk to me that way, don't be rude to me, you're not understanding me, you're not being patient, you don't know where this is coming from, you don't know the kind of day I had. Are we really living on the other side of that exactly that way? No, we're not, just in case you were wondering. Good friends don't just want to be right, they need to live right. Peter was right about Jesus, but Peter wouldn't have been able to live based on the rightness of what he said because he was correct that Jesus was the Christ, but he was unbelievably wrong about what being the Christ meant. So Peter was right about the facts. We have everybody right now just on social media, just citing facts after facts after facts, and it's all hypocrisy, no matter who's doing it. And the reality is we are so obsessed with facts that we hardly ever live them out at all the right way. If Jesus, if Peter lived out his right fact about Jesus, Peter would never have laid down his life at the end of it for his brothers. Peter would never have heard, put your sword away. Peter would have been a bully. He would have been an Israelite nationalist. He would have led riots. He would have ended up where Barabbas was. Because Peter thought that the Christ means we're going to violently and physically overthrow the Roman Empire. So Jesus says, okay, so you realize I'm the Christ. And then it says, he began to teach them because the things that come naturally to us are not ever the things that are right. He had to teach them that the Christ was to be delivered into the hands of sinners and suffer many things. And Peter politely pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. And Jesus is like, no, you did not just do that in front of everybody. He rebukes Jesus because all Peter has is the right facts, but he has no idea the living incarnate virtue of those facts. Peter is just a 
fact spewer, but he has no virtue inside of how to live according to that fact. And Jesus rebukes him. Why? Because if Peter lives like power means I can push you around to change your life. I can threaten you into following Jesus. We've all done it. If you were to die today, if a Mack truck were to come out of nowhere and hit you, would you burn forever? Uh, maybe. Do you want to burn forever? No, I don't. Then repeat after me these words. Salem, this is coercion. This is not love. It's threat. It's not love. Everybody who got saved because they didn't want to burn is in some way still thinking more about themselves than Jesus. Imagine at my wedding vows, I was sitting right here. This is actually where I stood in real life. I stood right here. I was looking at my beautiful wife, and Bishop Phil said, repeat after me, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife. And if somebody put a gun right here and was like, if you don't repeat after him, I'm going to shoot you. And I was like, Jacqueline, I love you so much. <laughs> like if my mother-in-law had a gun right here and she was like, you say what I'm telling you to say. Like, Jacqueline, I just want you to know I love you. Does this, does this look like the romantic wedding vow situation? No, because when you're coerced into love, it's never love. It's never love. So Jesus has to teach Peter a few things. Peter, here's what power looks like. Power looks like me hanging on a cross. What does salvation look like? It looks like me hanging on a cross. What does Paul say is the power of God? The cross. At the end of this, Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. We'll talk about that at the end. And then he says, some of you here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming in all of its power. Some of you will actually get to Golgotha and be alive when you see what the power of the kingdom looks like. Well, Pastor Bill, I thought the resurrection is the power of God. It's part of it, but it's not the center of the, of the power of God. The cross is the center of the power of God. Why do I say that? Because the resurrection by itself cannot be the power of God because if God rose Hitler, that wouldn't be too powerful. Think of the person, well, I don't want to say that. I don't want you to think of the person next to you because that would be really mean. If God didn't raise Jesus, the resurrection wouldn't have been powerful. No one in the New Testament is like, the power of God exists in Lazarus' tomb. The power of God exists in the raising of Jairus' daughter. It never says those things. The power of God is that he raised Jesus from the dead. When the life that was willing to be crucified for its friends, when that life is raised, then you realize that the cross was actually the power of God. The resurrection doesn't come after the cross. The resurrection is what tells us what the cross actually meant. The resurrection will one day shine light on all of our lives and show the world that we really weren't as bad as we looked. The resurrection is what gives meaning to the life, death, and burial of Jesus. Because it's who he rose that makes it powerful. And the who is a king who said, my throne is a cross. The who is a person who said to his tormentors and to Rome itself, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this is why this sermon only makes people who probably are out there excited. 
Because the worse you know you are, the more exciting this message is. The more you think you got the right facts, the more this is annoying you right now while I'm preaching it. Prostitutes weren't upset by Jesus. Scheming Zacchaeus wasn't upset by Jesus. The woman with seven demons cast out of her wasn't upset by Jesus. Jesus went to a party and all the wrong people showed up. Who was mad at Jesus? Us. The moral elite. The ones who have it all together, who've accepted the right things and went on the Roman road to repentance. Now that I've done all this work, how dare you tell me that somebody who didn't is as loved by God? I'll tell you seven ways from Sunday that that's the truth. Don't sing the song Reckless Love and just be excited that it's you. It's also excited about the person who annoys you every day at work. My goodness. Happy birthday. Can you come up and sing happy birthday to me? No. (laughs) This is challenging, Salem. I'm not done, though. Power is the cross. In Revelation... John says, who can win for us? And a voice comes and says, the the lion has conquered. This is everything you need to know about everything I'll preach for the rest of my entire life. He hears, he's looking this way, and he hears that a lion has conquered. And every image of what a lion conquering looks like goes into all of our minds because this is the genius of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants us to hear one thing and then see something different so it will redefine the first thing that we heard. I'll give you a quick sidebar because this is my last sermon for three weeks and I'm going to get mine in today. So I'll give you a sidebar. Has anybody had a knock on the door and somebody showed up at your house talking about the 144,000 that will be saved? Okay, that's it. That's all we'll say. We're not going to do that. Shame on you for everybody who raised their hand. I'm just kidding. I set everybody up. 144,000 will be saved. Why? Because it says that in the book of Revelation. But it doesn't. It says, I heard the number 144,000. But when I turned, I saw a multitude that no one can number. The Spirit is doing something. I heard... The number 144,000, an exclusive club. I'm going to get my VIP pass. I'm going to get in. I got box seats. Not many people are going to be in on what I'm in on, and this is amazing because it makes me feel more special than people who are out. Let me check out the other 144,000 I'm going to be with. A multitude I can't number? This devalues my elitism a little bit. This makes it seem like it's not so special of a club. All of them. No. Shut the door. It makes us redefine what the word group means or club means or VIP means or special small group means. It makes us realize that God's VIP group is everyone he's ever created. Well, only saved people are children of God. Read Luke's genealogy. It ends with Adam, the son of God, which means anyone born from Adam is a... (laughs) I heard, who is going to open this seal for us? We need somebody powerful. We need somebody mighty. We need someone that everyone's going to be afraid of. I'll tell you what, the angel says, 
a lion has conquered and can open the seals. And John's like, yes, I'm going to turn around and see all the bad guys just devoured and bloody and torn to pieces. And he turns and he's like, lamb, excuse me for a second. Like, we will do that when we get to heaven. We're going to be like, sir, can you please show us where Jesus is? And Jesus is going to be like, sure. (laughs) This lamb thing, can we just move it for a second? I'm trying to find this lion. And it says, and he turned and he saw a lamb that appeared to have been slain. Redefining what lion-likeness is. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but this lion functions like an atoning lamb. So maybe our view of power and our view of winning and our view of being first needs to look a lot different. Peter, you can be right about me being the Christ, but if you don't realize that that means I'm going to get all the way down to the bottom of the worst and bleed for it. The people who think I'm Elijah will be better off than you. Friendship doesn't just want to be right. It wants to live right. And what is living right? Living right is laying down your life for somebody who's wrong. We are all in this building watching from home because one person laid down his life for everyone who's wrong. We were not right when he laid his life down for us. We had not said the right things when he laid down his life for us. And if you did say the right things one day, you only said the right things because his spirit was working in you to say them anyway. Think about it. It took the Spirit of God for me to even confess in the first place that Jesus Christ was Lord. That didn't come from me. So something was working in me. Something in me was very saved before I said, I'm going to get saved today. God's like, oh, wow, great. You did that all on your own. Good job. Like we do with Sophia. Oh, wow, that was awesome. You did that. You, you, she'll be like, look, I made dinner. No, you didn't. You put it on the floor. But we're like, oh, that's amazing. That's how God is. Like, God, I'm accepting you today. He's like, okay, I was already in you that made you do that. Well, what if somebody hasn't yet? The patience of God is meant to lead to repentance. Walk humbly with people who haven't confessed yet because you don't know that that spirit's already tumbling around inside them someplace. But if all we do is draw lines, your facts are wrong, you haven't confessed the right thing, you haven't said the creed, you don't come to the table, you didn't say the sinner's prayer, you didn't do this, you're living like this, you're living like that. We're being Peter as if Peter never learned what it meant that Jesus was the Christ, and we're just slicing everybody's ears off with the word of God, the sword. We're cutting people up with it. And Jesus is like, i got to fix another ear. Come on, stop. Please, Salem, stop cutting people's ears off. There's too many ears. Angels, come help me pick up all the ears. Like, this is what's happening. He's healing ears because we're using the word of God to condemn people. Not to remind them that there's something happening in you that you might not know about yet. Well, how do you know that? Because there was something happening in me that I didn't know about yet. (laughs) All right, listen, I don't care. 
Send me emails. I'm not going to read them this week. <laughs> I want you to do something. This, this feels so good right now. Get this off my chest. If this is bothering you, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to spend three days thinking about why somebody talking scandalously about love makes you mad. And then ask yourself, do you really want to be that kind of person? Where too much love talk makes you mad because what if they're, what, Pastor, what if they can do whatever they want? They can, and so can you. It's just that the spirit and love of God has won you over, and what you want to do has changed. God wants everybody to do whatever it is they want to do because he wants them to be free, but he wants his love to change their want-tos. That's when real change occurs. Not when I do the right thing because I'm afraid of consequences, but when I do the right thing because the right thing is affecting me and it's changing my wants. It sounds like you're saying quite a few more people are going to be with Jesus in the end than I had originally thought. I am. If that bothers you, that people are going to get to be in the presence of God that didn't live as well as you did, go home and ask yourself, do I really want to be that kind of person? How many people want to live in the image of God? How many people believe that the more we know about God, the more we can live in his image? How many people want to be the kind of person where when somebody doesn't say the exact right things about you, you mutilate them? We all know deep down what the image of God really is. Whew. Whew. Good Lord. We're in trouble. Salem, it's been a lot of fun being your pastor. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Should we even go to point three? What do you think, man? You're my, you're my guy up there. You he said, he said go. Production is saying go to point three. Okay. Point three. What is it? Good friend... You ready? You're all good at this. <laughs> good friends. I, I save this to the end because everybody thinks I'm saying we shouldn't say to somebody you're doing something wrong. You absolutely should. I'm watching online. My eyes go to and fro examining all of Instagram and Facebook. I'm watching how you all date. It's not good. We're just going to say the thing, Steph. You need to come up with a good song when this is over. And have it go long, because I need to get out of here. We need to live right. Because when a witness is discredited, his testimony doesn't hold up in court. What do they do in court? A witness says, I saw what happened, and then people jump up there. Have you ever seen my cousin Vinny? They jump up there, and they're like, well, did you have your glasses on? And she's like, no, but I can see. And they're like, right in front of her, Joe Pesci's like, how many fingers am I holding up? She said, five. And he's like, okay, just the one. They try to discredit a witness so that their testimony doesn't hold water. We need to live well so that our testimony means something when we say it. We need to live well so that people are curious and want and pull our testimony out of us so we don't have to shove it in their face. If you ever have to shove your testimony in somebody's face, it's probably because you're not living well enough for them to feel safe to ask you about it. 
I'm saying this from experience. I've been a Christian bully most of my life. I have wanted to be right most of my life. I have forced my opinion, many of you in this room right now, that by the grace of God, you're still with me on this journey. I have fought more than I have served. I have plunged my opinion into people's lives. I have found ways, sneaky little ways, to get people talking about things like people do now with COVID. If you're sitting around somebody, you're having this nice time, you're hanging out, you're eating outside, there's a little rustling in the leaves, the fall has come, you can smell the pumpkin spice latte everywhere, everyone's happy, and then your one friend is like, weird times we're living in, isn't it? I do not want to talk about this with you right now. I was like that, I found ways to make this stuff happen because I wanted to share my opinion, and that is bullying. We have to live open hospitable lives. Have, back in the day, we used to have a prophecy, and people would say of Salem, this is way back in the day, probably while we were still Oasis, that God wants to expand our tent pegs. And everybody right away is like, new house. I have three bedrooms, I'm about to have six. Expand my tent pegs, new job, more money. But what that meant was that the banner of our church should be able to cover more kinds of people. It should put itself and hover itself over more kinds of people. Expand our tent pegs so more people can fit in here. Because when, you're, when you bump up against the aroma of Christ long enough, you start to smell like him too. Our testimony matters and our lifestyle matters and we have to rebuke people, but we have to rebuke them well. So here's a crash course on how to rebuke people well. And I'm sure everyone's going to start taking notes now. Yes, he's finally telling us how to rebuke people. New page. First, rebuking should be healing, not rejecting. Rebuking should bring healing, not rejection. Now, you think that sentence is simple, but think about the times you've critiqued somebody in your house. Did it bring, did it bring healing right away? I mean, what are we going to do when we talk about other subjects that are more risque than this? Like, are we okay? Are we good? Like, are we okay? I feel like this, I always ask Jacqueline, are we okay? Like, once sometimes when you're married, you have that moment where you're like, she said she was okay, but I don't think she is, and I think I've done something, and I can't figure out what it is, but maybe my not knowing what it is is the thing that I've done, so now I'm in real trouble. <laughs> I just want you to know that I'm good with you, Salem, so we'll just leave it at that, judging from some facial expressions otherwise, but first, when you rebuke somebody, what you should be saying with whatever words you need to use is... I'll use Tim. I'm going to use a lot of words, but the, what I should be saying to Tim is, Tim, I know you, and what you're doing isn't you. You're better than this. That's what a rebuke should reveal. A rebuke should say to somebody, you're better than this. I know who you really are. Like Moana at the end, when she's looking at Taka, I know who you really are. That part, that is actually really good. <laughs> Thank you, Moana. That is actually really good. She's saying, I know this isn't you. She sings, this is not who you are. 
I know who you are, who you really are. The way you're acting now, all this destruction, this is not who you are. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. He's complimenting Peter in the rebuke saying, you are better than this. You are more than this. You are selling yourself short. That's what a rebuke should do to a person. A rebuke to a person should make them feel like, I am more than this. I am better than this. My life is more valuable than what I'm giving it. And the people around me are more valuable than the way that I'm respecting them right now. So what does Jesus do? This is such an outrageous moment. Peter's like, he takes him aside and he rebukes him. And then Jesus does what I would do in the situation. He's like, okay, you just insulted me. And he looks to see who else might have heard it. So I can't stand when Sophia acts up in Walmart. I'm like, you are so lucky people are around right now. Smart. So he looks around and it says, and seeing all the people. So now Jesus knows I'm about to teach how to rebuke somebody. And it says in Mark's gospel, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, think about our Ephesians 6 text. We wrestle not against. So Jesus is rebuking Peter, but what is he doing? He is separating Peter from the power and principality that is operative in Peter's life. He's not, he's rebuking Peter by not talking to Peter, by talking to the satanic in Peter and removing it from him. This is the real rebuke. We tend to rebuke the person and not the power and the principality operative in their life. Jesus came and the first encounter he has in every one of the gospels is his encounter with the, demo- with the demonic. To show us that he's not here to reject people. He's here to destroy the powers and principalities that wreak havoc over the present darkness. So he looks at Peter and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, so that Peter can be free. It's not ever the person. It's the power and the principality operative in their life. Notice the first sin of the Bible is not two people making a rebellious decision by themselves. They had a little help, didn't they? From who? Power and principality in the heavenly places coerces, deceives, tricks them to do something. So Jesus shows up, and whenever he gets out of the boat, all the demons are like, get away from us. Why? Because they know that Jesus isn't here to reject the people. They know he's here to reject them. All people are good. You ready? Let's get even more controversial today since we haven't already. Someone once said, whew, there's good people on both sides. I don't like that phrase because there's, you ready? Let me get closer to you. There's not good people on both sides. There's good to be found in people on both sides. This is where we gotta be mature. There are some very bad people. There are some people where the powers and principalities have locked so into who they are that only God is going to be able to sort it out. But there's good to be found 
in every person. There are some people where the power has locked so into the flesh that we might have to love them and forgive them, but we might have to move on from them. But we can't move on from them in such a way where we don't realize that one day Jesus, the word that can divide bone from the marrow, is going to be able to surgically separate that power and that demonic from the flesh that he created, bled, and died for. That difference is everything. We could preach cheesy little messages that are easy to understand and get a lot more applause, or we can really get down to the bottom of it and talk about this. This really is everything. There are some people that are bad people because the demonic and the flesh have become so at one that only an act of God will separate it, and we might have to protect ourselves from a person like that, and we might have to call it out. We might have to say what it is, but we also have to say what it is in a way where we realize that one day Jesus is going to redeem that flesh and he's going to send that demonic back into the herd of pigs. So, separate yourself from evil people in a way, and then as you separate yourself, prepare your heart to be reunited with them again one day. And I said this before, and somebody said to me, and this, is, this was... This isn't easy. I'm saying I'm gonna, it's going to sound easy because I've thought about this for the last three years. So I can say it better now. But in the moment, you can see how this wreaked havoc on my life. I said this to somebody. And somebody after church, after everybody left, pulled me aside the exact right way and respectfully said, somebody really hurt my sister. Really bad. How can I want to see them again in heaven? And I said, do you trust me? Yes, because one day you're also going to be more restored. And the more restored I get, the more like Christ I become, the more slowly I will want to see even the worst people also have the same experience I'm having. See, while I'm still locked up in sinful flesh, there's people I don't want to be around. There are people right now that if I was with them in heaven, I'd be convinced I went to hell. (laughs) (laughs) darn it was wrong about the whole thing (laughs) delete all the live streams Ian but that's because I'm not as saved as I'm going to be one day see we treat salvation like it's this one time thing and then you're perfect no I feel like when you get saved you get more wrong sometimes because now the light is just shining into your whole life Jesus is in your business pointing stuff out that you didn't even know existed before So the more restored I get, the more I will want unrestored people to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So what does Jesus say? He says, take up the sword of the, the sword of the spirit. The only offensive weapon in all the armor of God. Everything in the armor of God is defensive. 85 bears, defense. That's funny to some people. But only one offensive weapon in the armor of God, the sword. And it's the sword of the, the sword of the, in Genesis, the spirit hovers over darkness and creates life. In the gospels, the spirit hovers over virginity and creates life. In Acts chapter 2, 
the Spirit hovers over afraid people in an upper room and creates the church. Every time the Spirit hovers, she creates. Do you see that? When the Spirit hovers, there's creation. The, when you use a sword, the sword of the... Our weapons should create life, not slice it in half. Our weapons should bring people closer to God, not sever them from him. What blocked the way to the tree of life? And what does it say in Revelation comes out of the mouth of Christ? You got to get through Jesus. Not some locked in armored battalion, but Jesus. He's the way to the tree of life because he is the tree of life. But ask yourself, have my words been a sword that gives life? <laughs> really, answer the question. It's not rhetorical. I want to hear every single person's answer. Have all of your words just been like little trees of life, causing little sprouts? So when spring comes, bees just bask in the nectar. When you speak, are there, is there like just gardens formed in everybody's life? When you post, is everyone like, thank you so much. I just feel like springs of living water have just gushed forth. Where are you drinking from? I want to drink from there too. Like this, think about it. Good friends seek to hear well, seek to live well, and want to rebuke in a way that, yeah, it might hurt the person. Yeah, it might sting, but it's going to separate what is acting on them, causing them to act a certain way from the person itself. The Pharisees bring a man who has a demon into the temple and says, what are we going to do with him, Jesus? And Jesus kicks the demon out of the man, not the man out of the temple. This is what he does. He says this, the temple was made for this man to live in it. He's not going anywhere, but what's acting on him is go. That's good friendship. When you can see the real potential of a person and speak to them in such a way where they are motivated to realize their full potential. When Peter sinks in the water, it says that Jesus rebuked him and said, Oh, ye of little faith, at the same moment he gave him his hand to save him from it. Because his rebuking and his saving are the same exact thing. When he rebukes, he saves. Why? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, what was he yesterday? A creator. What is he in the Gospels? He's a savior. But his creating and his saving are the same thing. If ye be in Christ, you are new creations because they're the same thing. Well, his creating is a saving. The minute he made Adam, he saved him. Oh my gosh, we better stop. Praise the Lord. The last thing I want to say, and then we'll come to the table, putting this away. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and then he says, and so pray. The way we wield this sword is through prayer, intercession, and supplication. A wonderful theologian, Simon Chan, said this. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God fell on the church, he said, Acts chapter 2 is what the Father answering the prayers of the Son looks like. 
when the Spirit gushed forth on the church and people began to speak in tongues, Simon Chan says, Jesus is always praying to the Father to bless the world. And the Father's response is to pour the Holy Spirit out and give gifts among men. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times and I'm going to pray for you so that when you return, you'll strengthen your brothers. I've preached on this from a different angle, but I want to look at it this one last way. When Peter got it right, notice Jesus didn't marry himself to the rightness of Peter any more than he divorced himself from the wrongness of Peter. Please, God, hear what I'm saying. When Peter got it wrong, Jesus didn't divorce himself from Peter. He rebuked him in a way that brought Peter closer. Yes? But when Peter got it right, notice in Matthew's gospel, when Peter gets it right, Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Why is this significant? Because when Peter got it wrong, Jesus didn't say, Peter, this is you. He said, this is the enemy acting on your life, and I'm going to stand up for you. But when Peter got it right, Jesus didn't marry himself to the rightness of Peter. We tend to jump down people's throat when they get it wrong, and we tend to become almost lustfully excited when they get us right. But if Jesus would have married himself to the rightness of Peter, the minute Peter denied him, Jesus wouldn't have been able to recover from it because he would have idealized his relationship with Peter. How many people do you know have a relationship and within three days they're like, I found the one, and they end up horribly disappointed at some point? Found the right job, found the right school, found the right calling, found, found, found. This is it. This is the break. This is why I have a breakthrough. I had a great service. I had a breakthrough. I danced. I did this. They laid hands on me. And disappointment. Disappointment. Why? Because we marry ourselves to things that aren't Jesus that really look like him. If Jesus would have said, Peter, you are my number one disciple because you got me right and everyone got me wrong and you're the man and we're going to do great things together and nothing's going to be able to stop us. Come to the front of the line. You're the guy. I trust you. And then when Peter denies him, Jesus is crushed forever. But Jesus didn't marry himself to the rightness of Peter. He stood at a distance from it and said, Peter, just so you know, this right that you did, didn't come from you. I'm about to tell you that the wrong you did also didn't come from you. But the rightness didn't come from you either. It came from my father. And Jesus freed himself to love Peter, but not be destroyed when Peter failed. Why is that important? Because Jesus said, I'm going to be married to the father so that when you fail me, I won't be crushed by you. I'll be motivated to save you. Sometimes we buy too much into the people who agree with us to the point where when they all of a sudden do something wrong, we can't, we're so exasperated, we can't believe it, and we're way too hurt. As if we're surprised that people mess up. Spoiler alert. They do, and they will. I'll hurt you. The longer we pastor and do that, have this relationship, I'm going to hurt you. Don't be surprised, please. Let me tell you right now, I'm going to do it. So surprise, I haven't, and if I have and I don't realize it, see? <laughs> <laughs> see I, I just I, there's so much I want to say here but this is what friendship is friendship is celebrating God in the person when they get it right and rebuking the demonic that's acting on the person when they get it wrong but loving the person in both instances 
It's praying for your enemies that maybe you have to separate your life from a little bit, but it's praying for them in such a way where you say, Lord, make them right and make me right so maybe one day in the heavenlies we can embrace as if this never happened. Because he did that for you. He did that for me. And I don't want to say he did that for me. He didn't do that for me. He's doing that for me. He did that for me implies I'm done. I'm not. I already want to. I'm watching Sophia be crazy in there. I'm not as saved as I'm preaching right now. The whole time I'm preaching at you, I'm looking out there like, oh, my God. It's like I'm going to put on a soundtrack when I get home and chase her around the house. Like, (laughs) play Enter Sandman and just scare, right? You want to play Enter Sandman? No, still no? Okay. Let's stand to our feet this morning. This is one of those sermons that doesn't end because I'm going to preach it for the rest of my life. Humor me. Have we heard a few things that can help us love our neighbor a little bit better? You don't have to clap for this, but I also hope that this stepped on some people's toes because honestly saying it out loud is stepping on my own toes. It's difficult. It's difficult. And it's not done, and it's an evolution, and it's happening, and we're learning about it. But as Randall Worley, one of our overseers, said, if you've exaggerated the love of Christ, you haven't done a good enough job explaining it yet. And so I'm going to keep exaggerating it for the rest of my entire life. And one of the most beautiful things he does, every word of this is so unbelievably powerful and amazing. But it wasn't unbelievers. It wasn't unbelievers who were the first ones to deny him. It was his closest people. So every time we want to be excited that at least we're saved, we're like King Hezekiah who said, all right, the curse is going to come in 15 years, but I'm only going to be alive for another 10. At least I'll be good. Nope. If you're a believer, you actually have more of a risk of denying, betraying, and doubting him than you do if you're not. And that's one of the things the gospel shows us also. It was Peter who denied him. It was Thomas who doubted him. And it was Judas who betrayed him. And who entered Judas to betray him? Wasn't just Judas. It was powers and principalities. But in the midst of all of that, he took bread as he was being betrayed, he said, the one who's going to betray me is also going to dip their hand in this cup with me. Well, what is the cup? The blood of the new covenant, which is what? Shed for you and for everyone for the forgiveness of sins. What did Judas dip his hand in before he left? The blood of the new covenant. For the forgiveness of sins. Jesus like, yo, you're about to do a horrible thing, but before you do, can you just get your hand in this new covenant with me? I want to know that you're going to be okay. Does that sound like the heart of a dad? Yes. That sounds like the heart of somebody who's madly in love. Before you go, can you just, can we share this meal together? Can you just get your hand in this new covenant? Because the old one is not going to help you tonight, but this new one, It can do some things.
Get your hand in this with me, Judas. Thomas, come here. Peter, get over here. The rest of the overachievers, whatever, but you guys. (laughs) Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread and this cup as we dip our hands in this new covenant with you. I pray that you would sanctify us also the way that you're about to sanctify this meal and help us lead people to this cup. Help our lives, the way we express ourselves, the way we reveal ourselves at home, the way we reveal ourselves to others, the way we reveal ourselves online, help us to be revealing an invitation to this cup, to this bread that has saved our lives, made us new, and sent us on our way to go help you do that for the rest of the world. We now join you in recultivating Eden together. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Would you partake with me this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.